Amen. We come now to Hebrews chapter 8. It's a text that you'll probably find familiar as we were there last year. I think it's been about nine months ago. Uh, Certainly this is a magisterial letter, a great letter, one of the most important in the New Testament and perhaps all of Scripture because it tells us many important things. So we are going to go back to chapter 8 and kind of look at chapter 7 and 8 together to recap where we were nine months ago, A, because it's been so long and it's important where we're going to know what is here. And uh, if I just said we'll go back and listen to them online, you'd have like, I don't know, maybe like 14 sermons to listen to. So you can do that, but we thought we'd just have a recap. And then next week we're going to get into something I promised a year ago, which is a discussion on how Hebrews 8 is so important to Baptist covenantal theology. Uh, the groundwork is really laid here. And so we want to look at that next week and we will um, see, see that argument. But to do that, we've got to be prepared to know the argument of Hebrews 8 and really 7 along with it. And so we want to look at that. So this is a letter that teaches us that all of Scripture points to Christ. All of it. Right? From, the, from the very first chapter of the Bible in creation, we learn throughout the revelation of Scripture that Christ was intimately involved in that creation. We recognize that from the very beginning, as man falls, there's a promise given in the garden, the proto-evangelium, right? This first gospel that is a promise of a coming redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent. A seed of woman, right? One born of woman. This would be the one who would come. So again, that might have been mysterious and hard to fathom in Genesis 3, but the scriptures reveal to us that that is Christ. And then throughout scripture, we see many revelations, don't we? Types and shadows, persons and events that point to something greater than themselves. And all of that is pointing to Christ. I mean, whether it is um, individuals like Moses and Joshua, the author of Hebrews says they are the shadow of a greater substance that is found in Christ. They are a type in this sort of typological language. They are a type to which Christ responds as the antitype, the fulfillment of those types. And we can see events that are the same way throughout Scripture. They're not hard to find. We look at a situation like Abraham taking his beloved son Isaac to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. We wonder, what is God doing? This is the son of promise. I'm sure Abraham was wondering to some degree, why is God asking me to do this? And yet, we learn again in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham was willing to do it because God commanded him to, and he reasoned rightfully, based on faith, that if God commanded him to kill this son, and it's through this son that the promise must come, then God must necessarily raise this son from the dead. Now, why do we say Abraham is the father of faith? Right there is the answer. Abraham was a faithful man. Did he have his stumblings along the way? Yes, he's a human being. But we see in that, even that incident on Mount Moriah, a picture and type of Christ. Because as Isaac is not sacrificed. It points to the truth that God will provide His own sacrifice. And a ram caught in the thicket that is instead of Isaac, pointing again to Christ who would be our substitute, the one who would be in the place of His people. So again, we can exposit many, many places. In fact, too many to to name in one day, to name in a month or a year of sermons. You could not sum this up well enough because it's the entirety of Scripture points to Jesus. And so we see that. 
And the author of Hebrews wants to point to that, that all of these things are shadows in preparation of the substance that is found in the New Covenant, the New Testament. And that's going to be a word we'll look at next week. Testament and covenant are similar, except testament always involves death. Co- covenants sometimes involve death, usually involve death. There's some debate on how to define this, but we can look at the covenant made with Adam. There wasn't, at that point, a bloodshed over that covenant. And there's reasons we'll look at next Sunday for that. But as we think about this, as we think about this, we want to recognize that the purpose of this author is to say that all of that Old Testament shadow points to its greater fulfillment in the substance of Christ. And this is a one-way street. In other words, you can't come in at Jesus and work your way back to Moses. Now, you can in terms of understanding, but you can't say, well, I've come in through Jesus, but I'm going to leave Jesus and go to Moses. In fact, that's the entire argument of Hebrews. You can't do it that way. The shadow points to the substance, the type to the antitype. You can't go in reverse. It's not a two-way street. And the problem at the heart of this letter is of people that have come to Christ, Hebrew Christians that have come to Christ, and then under persecution have thought, why can't we go back? Why can't we go back to the synagogue? Why can't we go back to worshiping in that way? Why can't we go back to the Levitical priesthood? Why can't we go back and find shelter there? Because after all, wasn't the Sinai Covenant and Moses the working of God too? To which we say, yes, of course it was. But they were types They were shadow, pointing to a substance. And once you've come to the fullness, you cannot go back to the part. That's the argument. You can't go back to the part because the Sinai covenant was not the end. Moses was not the end. The Levitical priesthood was not the end. And we know this from the plain record of Scripture. How do we know it? Moses said that there would be another prophet coming. Unto him you should listen. Moses said it. Moses said, I'm not the end. There's another one coming. How about the Sinai covenant? The prophet Jeremiah held out the great hope of what? A new covenant. Not like the former one. Substantively different than the former one. The former one being written externally on tablets of stone. This one being written on the heart and mind. So again, we see there a promise of something greater. And what about the Levitical priesthood? Was it the end? Well, this author has been telling us if you were paying attention as you read the Old Testament, you would realize it wasn't. Because there was this mysterious figure in Genesis of a different priesthood. Of a different priesthood. You say, well, that doesn't mean it's a greater priesthood. Except then you didn't read Psalm 110. Because God says to the Messiah, you shall be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, wouldn't that have to be a greater priesthood if the Messiah will be a priest in that order? So if we read the Scriptures carefully, the author of Hebrews says you would have already seen these things. But at least hear it now and go back and see it. And therefore, if you're under the priesthood of Christ, the Melchizedekian priesthood, how can you go back to the Levitical priesthood? It'd be foolish to do so. In fact, our author goes one step further than that. He gives all these warnings. There's these difficult warnings passages in Hebrews that we all wrestle with that are to be taken very seriously. Because this author says to go back now to Levi 
is tantamount to rejecting Christ. Therefore, it's apostasy. It says this very plainly. And what this author says is that would mean damnation and destruction for you. Now, we've made this clear. I need to say this because we have people here who weren't here nine months ago. And maybe some of us have forgotten that this author is not arguing you lose your salvation. He's arguing it's an evidence that you didn't have it, that you weren't among the people of God. You will make it clear to us that you went out from us, as John said, which gave declaration to the fact that you were never of us. Never of us. And so again, we need to recognize there is something here very important to understand. And if we understand those warning passages, it'll be because we understand this important reality of the Melchizedekian high priest, a greater priesthood, and a greater covenant. And so Hebrews 7 and 8, we're looking at 8, but we're also going to look a little bit at 7 to get this argument. They really go together. We want to look at two points in thinking about these chapters. First of all, a better priesthood. And second of all, a better covenant. Now I want to say this. We're doing the jet tour thing again today, right? I can't cover two chapters very well. And, uh, but we're going to try to do it as a recap. So again, if there's something here that you hear and you'd like to know more about, Sermon Audio has all the sermons from last year. You can go back and, and pick the particular one you want to listen to and, and find out more in depth about what we're talking about. But I want to begin first with this better priesthood, because we're already speaking about that, aren't we? This Melchizedekian priesthood is said to be a greater priesthood than that of Aaron, a more important, a availing priesthood where Aaron's priesthood was faulty. That's the language of the author of Hebrews. It wasn't perfect. It couldn't perfectly do the work of salvation. God never intended it to. It's no flaw in God. It's no flaw in the old covenant. It's no flaw in the Levitical priesthood. God never intended to use it to that end. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. That is a testimony of Scripture. Christ alone could live out the law perfectly. And so we need to recognize that. But in showing this, showing that there's this letter that is saying in the New Testament, you cannot return to the Old Testament system, you cannot return to it, our author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, demonstrates clearly that Christ is a greater high priest. Now much of this letter points to that very thing, that Christ is of a greater priesthood, and chapter 7 is the place where he particularly labors to that end. And so if you've been here, you know what we're talking about. But it reminds us, first of all, in that chapter of the Melchizedekian figure found in Genesis. And he's just there for a moment. D.A. Carson said years ago that if you actually just cut out those verses, the text flows fine. So God put it there that we would recognize the importance of this mysterious figure. Abraham comes back from battle. The king of Salem comes out as if from nowhere. He's pretty noteworthy to us, right? He has a name that is kind of interesting. It means king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem. Salem, the word for peace. He's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. He's from the area of Salem, which will later be called Jerusalem, an important city biblically. They have something like a communion there, bread and wine, and Abraham offers a tithe to this man. Now that's the basic historical background. And I think as you're reading, you think, who is this guy? I think God intended for that to be the reaction as we come to that part of Genesis that we'd say, who is this mysterious figure? Who is this? 
Psalm 110 reminds us that he's a very important figure. But it's also important to remember here that he disappears. The author of Hebrews says he just rides off the page of history as if he never died. In other words, he's using this in typological language to say he's a lot like Christ without beginning and without end. And he comes and ministers graciously and amazingly as a king priest of the God Most High. Pretty spectacular. But he doesn't really disappear from Scripture, does he? Because as we said earlier, Psalm 110 records David recording God's revelation to the Messiah. The Lord said to my Lord. Right? And part of that that he says is, you'll be a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now again, it doesn't take a a lot of thought to say. That means a couple of things. First of all, Christ was never intended to be a priest according to the order of Levi. And second of all, the order of Melchizedek must be a higher order of priesthood. A higher order of priesthood. Now as we look at this, we'd also see something else that's said to us in chapter 7. If you've got your Bibles, just turn there for a second and look at this. Because there's an argument made here from covenantal theology. Because it's an interesting argument that's made here. It says here that Abraham paid Melchizedek a tithe. And the author of Hebrews says this establishes without question that Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Why? Well, he says, isn't it true that Abraham, as the federal head of all who come after him, uh, he basically represents all those people in his loins. So what he does, all his descendants do in him. This is biblical language. We fell in Adam. Why? Because we're descendants of Adam. If we are joined to Christ by faith, then we are Christ, and what can be said of Christ can be said of us. We stand in His righteous standing. This is covenantal language. Covenantal language. And we see here, he says, that because Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, that's the same as Levi paying a tithe to Melchizedek. And as Abraham received a blessing from Melchizedek, that's the same as Levi in his loins receiving a blessing from Melchizedek. And of course, a blessing can only be given from the greater to the lesser, and a tithe from the lesser to the greater. And therefore, Abraham recognized the greater state of Melchizedek, and therefore Levi must have as well. Now this is biblical language, covenantal language, federal language. We'll look a little bit more at this next week. But it's making the point, if Abraham said, Melchizedek is greater than I, then Levi in his loins as a descendant of Abraham also likewise says Melchizedek is greater. So even Aaron, even the Levitical priesthood says Melchizedek is greater. So that ends the debate for the author of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, which means it ought to end the debate for us. Melchizedek and his priesthood is greater. Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now as we come to this, we come to a key question in verse 11. If perfection, after arguing this point, therefore if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priest that should rise according to the order of Melchizedek? In other words, if God's intention was that the Levitical priesthood of the Old Covenant was enough to do all that He wanted to do, then why would He promise another priest according to another priesthood in another covenant? Why would He do this? 
it tells us clearly that from the very beginning, God planned for the Levitical priesthood to be for a time and then to be superseded by a greater priesthood. That is the argument of Hebrews here. So as we look at this, we begin to see it. Now, something else important is said here. Look at verse 14. So it says here that, For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. What is the author saying here? He's saying Christ could not even be a priest according to the order of, Melch- excuse me, the order of Levi. He could not be a priest under the old covenant. Why? He wasn't of the tribe designated for service under that covenant. And this is going to come to an important point here that's made. Every covenant or every priesthood is attached to its covenant. The rules for its order are given in that covenant. So in the old covenant, you have a political priesthood and the laws and rules under which that priesthood operates. And so in realizing that, that that is the case, then we realize that the, uh, that the Levitical priesthood falls under a certain covenant. And in that way, falls under the rules attached to that covenant. In, in that way, then Christ could not be a priest under that old covenant. That's the argument made here. And we'll see that in just a moment again. So, the Messiah could not legally serve under the Mosaic covenant. But again, that doesn't surprise God. God always intended there would be a superseding covenant that would come that He would be a priest according to. And that is exactly what He's saying in Psalm 110. That He will be a a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, as we continue forward, we'll see this in chapter 3. He's not only a priest according to a better priesthood, but it also says here that he makes a better sacrifice. Again, the law attached to a covenant, right? The covenant itself dictates what the sacrifices must be. And a priest is one who must give the sacrifice. Notice verse 3 of chapter 8. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gift and sacrifice. That's undeniable. In the Old Covenant, the Levitical priests offered sacrifices. Now we can think of the high priest particularly having that office in which he went into the Holy of Holies and offered a sacrifice on Yom Kippur. That's the image often given here in Hebrews. But there were other sacrifices and gifts that were offered and we see that in the text of Scripture. Again, Christ, if he's to be a high priest, has to have a sacrifice to offer. And the author of Hebrews reminds us he has a greater sacrifice to offer. Why? Well, was the sacrifice of the Old Testament, all the various sacrifices that were offered, did they avail finally? Well, the author says, no, you know they didn't because they had to do them over and over and over and over and over again without end. Even Yom Kippur, this great availing sacrifice, they had to do year after year after year after year after year. It never was enough on its own because it pointed to something greater than itself that would be fulfilled in the sacrifice that Christ would offer. Well, what does He offer? He offers a perfect sacrifice. A once and for all sacrifice. And this is told to us from the very beginning of this letter when it says, when He had by Himself or in His own body purged our sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
In other words, when Christ had offered himself. So he's not just the perfect high priest. He's not just representing a perfect priesthood. But now he's offering a perfect sacrifice. Now we say at that point, we have an objection. We have an objection. If we want to argue in Levitical terms, we say, but there's a problem here. Because I know something about the way the Old Testament frames sacrifice. It's not just the slaughtering of an animal. It's the taking of blood into the sanctuary and applying it. Right? You can slaughter an animal on Yom Kippur outside the Holy of Holies, but if you never carry the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, make intercession and apply it, it is of no avail. That's why the instructions are then to take it in with hyssop and apply it to the Ark of the Covenant, making intercession on behalf of the people. Here's the problem. What sacrifice can Christ, what, excuse me, what sanctuary can Christ enter? He has no sanctuary. He is barred from entering the Levitical sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. He cannot enter it. He is not a Levite. It would be unlawful for Christ to enter the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. So now we have a problem, don't we? Except the author of Hebrews says, no, you didn't read your scriptures carefully enough. If you had read them carefully enough, you would know that even the earthly sanctuary and holy of holies was not the end. It was also a type. It was also a shadow. In fact, we could say it isn't, in the language of this letter, the true sanctuary. Now, we made this point a year ago. Don't think that means it's the false sanctuary. That's not what it means. It means it's a model or type of the true sanctuary. If you want to see that, it's right here in your text. He says this, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gift and sacrifice. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Why? The very thing we've just been talking about. He can't enter the sanctuary. But what does it say? Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to law, meaning the, the law of Moses, the old covenant, who serve what? The copy and shadow of heavenly things. Our author is saying the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple, the earthly of holy of holies is not the end in itself. It's a copy of something else. It's a shadow of a substance that exists apart from it. Now the author says, you think I'm just making this up? We should say no, you're inspired by the Holy Spirit. But he says, let me give you a text to look at. He says, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, meaning God said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on this mountain. God said, the thing that you're making, the tabernacle, and every part of that tabernacle, including the Holy of Holies, is a pattern of something that already existed. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, this is a heavenly tabernacle, a heavenly sanctuary. You see that in verse 2. He is, meaning Christ, is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Who erected the old covenant tabernacle? Man, right? God appointed for it to be made and they made it. God appointed uh, that artisans would be inspired to do the work just as in the temple. But it was made by human hands. But the author of Hebrews says there is another sanctuary 
another tabernacle in the heavenly place that is made by God. And in some way, beyond me to tell you what the way is, the earthly tabernacle was like a model of it, a representation of it, a shadow of it. That's the exact word he uses, a shadow of it. That the earthly tabernacle was a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. So when the scriptures tell us that Jesus went not into the curtains of an earthly tabernacle, but behind, if you will, the glorious curtain of the heavens to minister, that's what it's getting at. He ascended to the right hand of God where he's enthroned as our king priest. Remember, a Melchizedekian priest is both priest and king. He rules and reigns and intercedes as our priest and king. All these things fulfilled in where he is now. Now, I don't want to get to this too much today, but Hebrews is going to have more to say about this. That Christ applied the blood in the heavenly tabernacle. We're going to come and see that as we move forward. And we'll talk about it then. But again, he says, I've got in every way a superior priest here. He's a superior priest of a superior order with a superior sacrifice in a superior sanctuary. Now, all of that cannot be denied as being in the Word of God. He tells it to us plainly here. Make this according to the pattern given to you upon the mountain, which you make, and it's but a copy and shadow of the heavenly thing. Now, all of that is marvelous. Marvelous. But I want to come to our second point. Our second point is there's also a greater covenant. There's also a greater covenant. And this is part of what we're going to go to next week in seeing how, the, how our Baptist forefathers interpreted their covenant theology to see there is a distinct difference between the Old and New Covenant. And we'll talk about this next week. But there is a distinction between them. And they base it right here. And, and uh, we will come back to that, as I said. But there is the argument here for a greater covenant. Our author has already argued in chapter 7 something very important. That with a change of priesthood, there must be a change of law. Because the priesthood is authorized and instructed under law. The Old Testament, very, a good part of the Torah is instructions for the Levitical priesthood, isn't it? We go through Leviticus and even Exodus and we see the way things are ordered and to be done. So if Christ is going to be our high priest, then he can't be under that covenant. He cannot be under it because he cannot be a priest under that covenant. Recap why, just to make sure we're clear on this. He's not a Levite, right? Nowhere in the Word of God does it say that one of the tribe of Judah can minister in the Holy of Holies. In fact, he would be violating the law of God to do so. Christ could not and would not do that. So again, we recognize this. There must be a new priesthood and there must be a new covenant attached to it, a new covenant given. Now, again, should that surprise us? Well, our author says no. Were you reading the Old Testament? It's, it's attested to there. Look at Jeremiah 31, one of the great promises of the Old Testament that, that the Jews were holding on to, hoping and longing for, was the promise of a new covenant given. Most of us know that verse, don't we? Jeremiah 31, 31, we know that verse because we know it's an important verse in biblical theology. There is the promise of a new covenant that is one day going to come. 
a covenant that God will give to the house of Judah and to the house of Israel. And he says it's not like the previous one. And he goes into the ways that it's different. And there are serious ways that it's different. We have a sermon last year on this very thing. You can go on Sermon Audio and find it on how it's different, how it's unique, how it departs, if you will, in some ways from standing under the old covenant. But the glories of it are that God has offered this to us. He has offered this new covenant under which Christ avails. He avails. He atones for his people. Now, there's some things we want to see here, but it's pretty obvious this is where the author is, is um, lassoing his rope to because you can just look here in the, in the verses and find it. In verse 8 he says, and by the way, look at verse 7, he says, For if the first covenant had been faultless, in other words, if there was nothing more needed than what the first covenant offered, then why would there be a need for a second one? Why would God have spoken about a coming second one? Why would there be a need for a second one if the first one did all God intended? in time and space. You see, the reality is, the New Testament argues this over and over again, the old covenant was not sufficient for the greater plan of salvation God had. He appointed it for a time and purpose and to a people, but that it was always for a time. Paul makes this clear in his writings. But here's what he says about this. Why would there be place for a second? Why would they seek a second? And yet, he says this in verse 8, Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. So again, pretty obvious what covenant we're talking about. This isn't the covenant with Adam in the garden. This isn't some other covenant. He says it's the covenant he gave them when he led them out of the land of Egypt by the might of his arm. This is the Sinai covenant, he says. Because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. So what will this covenant be? I will put my law in their heart and write them, or excuse me, in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. And then he says, A new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's almost a direct, direct reference to what Paul argues in Second Corinthians when he makes reference back to Moses and the glory that was on his face and how it was fading away, and that represents in some way the old covenant whose glory is fading away because it wasn't meant to be eternal. It wasn't an eschatological covenant. It was a temporal covenant given for a purpose and for a time, but would lead, as if by the hand, Paul says, would lead by the hand to that eternal and eschatological covenant which is in Christ. Now, I want you to recognize something because many people, I think, aren't careful with reading this. They say, oh, it says the first one was made obsolete. Paleu. Obsolete. Passing away. And therefore they say, oh, so what you're arguing is that the law has passed away or that God's moral law has passed away. No, we want to be very clear on this. That is not what it's saying. That is not at all what it's saying. It's saying that the covenant has passed away. 
The covenant that was made at Sinai has passed away. Many people read the old covenant. They read that covenant and they think that everything in it is appointed under that covenant and is found nowhere else. That's just not the case. There are many things in the old covenant that are clearly intended to be in the theological language, positive laws. They're appointed for a purpose in time. They're not eternal. They don't represent the moral standing of God. What's an example of that? The food laws. How do we know that? In the new covenant, they're abrogated, right? We see there, Peter has this sheet come down before him. He sees many things on there. He's known his whole life. He should never eat. God says, take and eat. Peter says, no way. I will never do it, Lord. And the Lord says, do not call unclean what I tell you is clean now this represents more than just food doesn't it we went through this in Jonah this represents the ability and Peter will recognize this very clearly that he is allowed to go into Gentile homes and preach the gospel right because Cornelius calls for him he says oh this can't be a coincidence because normally I would have said there's no way I'd go to a Gentile's home and preach the gospel but God just told me don't call unclean what he has said is clean He recognizes the carryover theologically, and that means that the law was given for a similar purpose. That particular food law was given to make Israel distinct. They had a unique food and dietary system that made them stand out from all their neighbors. They had unique ways of worshiping that made them stand out from their neighbors. Not all those things were the eternal moral commands of God. They were given to a people for a time. That doesn't mean God changes. He just enacted something for a time according to his purpose. That does not mean that other parts of the law pass away. That does not mean that God's moral code passes away. Give an example of that. We say, was it wrong to murder before it was put into the Ten Commandments? Of course it was. You know, when Adam was in the garden, he was given a command that we read about in Scripture, do not eat of the tree, right? of the knowledge of good and evil. And he ate of it and he fell. But here's the question. If he had, instead of that, gotten angry and murdered Eve, would he also have fallen? Of course he would have. Because he would have violated the law of God, the moral law of God. So again, we need to recognize something here. The the way our Baptist forefathers worded it was that these things were re-stipulated in the Old Covenant. There were moral commands re-stipulated, re-given again formally in the the code of the Old Covenant, but pre-existed the Old Covenant, and go beyond the Old Covenant. Is it wrong to do certain things? Eternally, yes, it is always wrong. And you'll often hear people say things like tithing. They'll say, well, we don't have to worry about tithing. That's an Old Covenant command. Is it? It is a way that God always set apart that His people should honor Him. I think we just read about Melchizedek. Abraham paid him a tithe because he recognized that Melchizedek was a representative of the true living God. What did Jacob said? If you will be my God and you will go with me, I will give to you one-tenth of all that I receive. That seems to predate the Ten Commandments, predate the law. It's encapsulated in the law. And in the New Covenant, Jesus says, when you tithe, right? He says, you tithe of all of your, your herbs and spices, all these sorts of things. He says you should continue doing those, but also be concerned about the weightier things of love and justice, right? So again, we recognize this. It isn't that the law has passed away. Parts of this covenant have become obsolete. They had their time, they had their purpose, and now they are no more. 
I want to also ask you to think about this. The promise given in Jeremiah 31 is not that the law disappears, but that he writes it on our heart. Right? That he writes it upon our heart. Now, that doesn't mean we're saved by law keeping. I don't want to confuse anybody here. We are saved by grace because Christ perfectly obeyed the law, perfectly stood in our stead. He became the, the last Adam, the, the one who obeyed God as Adam had disobeyed God. And we are joined unto him as our head. We walk or stand in Christ as formerly we stood in Adam. By faith, we stand in Christ. But we shouldn't be mistaken about this. God is the same God. He hasn't changed. What he said he cared about in Exodus, he cares about now. Right? There's just some things we have to discern that were for a time and purpose. And the Word of God helps us to do that. Now, if you look here as we try to get near the end here, he makes this quite clear. That the first covenant, meaning the Sinai covenant, had fault within it. It wasn't perfect. For if that first covenant, this is verse 7, had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. That's what we want to leave you with. It was never meant to be a perfect availing agreement or covenant. I would just point you again to 2 Corinthians. This is Paul's argument, chapters 2, 3, and 4. He makes this argument quite clear. Again, there's a sermon on that if you need more help on that as well. But again, it pointed to our need of salvation. But it did not offer us salvation. I mean, theoretically it did. If you lived by perfectly by the law, then you would be saved by the law, right? Do this and live is the command of Scripture. The problem is, as fallen sinners in Adam, none of us can do it. And so none of us can live. So what is the Old Testament teaching us? Why does Paul say in Romans, the end of the law is Christ Jesus? The, the aim of the law is Christ Jesus. The telos of the law is Christ Jesus. Why does he say that? He says that to tell us that the law is pointing us to Jesus in this way. God is perfectly holy. We are not. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. That means there's this gulf that we can't cross between us and God. We need a mediator. We need a savior. We need an atonement that none of us can avail for ourselves. And the good news is that God has given what we need. He has sent his own son who came into the world and lived perfectly righteous, in no way disobeyed God. That's Paul's argument in Romans, as one man disobeyed and brought death to all, so one man obeyed and brought life. You see, Christ obeyed the law. Christ came and lived perfectly before God, became the true Israelite, the true righteous one, in whom we stand by faith joined to him. And what that means is we need to recognize that all this is part of a covenant that is if you will, testified to, guaranteed, this language is used in Hebrews, by His blood. Not the blood of many, many animals, but one perfect blood that perfectly avails. And so, my friends, by God's grace, He has given us what He needs. So, given us what we need. So, what is the the summation of Hebrews 7 and 8? And really, we could argue all of Hebrews. Well, it begins with we have a perfect prophet, priest, and king. And then it gets to this point. He truly is the perfect priest of a perfect priesthood in a perfect sanctuary with a perfect sacrifice as a part of a perfect covenant that will never need to be replaced. It will avail perfectly throughout all eternity because it is Christ who did it. 
And it said, it's written in Mark chapter 7, verse 37, He does all things well. My friends, as we gather today, to that we can only add, Amen.